In the Reading Corner this afternoon, I'm welcoming Catherine Bruton to talk about her latest novel, Another Twist in the Tale. It's a story inspired by Charles Dickens' Oliver, which has an ingenious what-if premise. What if Oliver Twist had a twin sister? How would her story have played out in a Victorian underworld where girls are worth less? From this beginning, we're taken on a thrilling romp where some familiar characters are encountered as well as some new ones. And Catherine is here to tell us all about it today. So welcome back to the Reading Corner, Catherine. Thank you for having me back again. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> In my introduction to the novel there, did I say what you would want to say about it or have I missed something really important? No, I think that was a perfect summary. Yeah, yeah. In that case, I'd like to take our listeners a little bit deeper into the story and perhaps start at the beginning because the first episode of our heroine's life, um, the twin sister of Oliver Twist, who's given the name Twill, um, I'd like to kind of delve into a little bit of this first episode of her life. She's literally separated from her brother on the night of their birth. Um, when she's born in the orphanage, she's considered worth less than a boy. It's not worth um, feeding a girl orphan because they're not going to bring enough money back to the public purse. So she's literally cast out into the snow where she is found by a young lady by the name of Baggage Jones. And Baggage Jones takes her back. She's a serving girl at an institution called um, the Blackjack Gaming Hell of Camberwell Grove. Um, and she takes Twill back there. Um, and Twill is raised amongst the card shop sharks and uh, reckless young gentlemen and also the beautiful butterfly girls who inhabit the boudoir. Um, she's brought up under the auspices of Mrs Spank and her spoon. Um, and, <laughs> Sorry I have to laugh there. <laughs> I was pleased with that name and um, and the whole place is run by the monstrous and gargantuan Madame Manzoni who raises girls to be beautiful and then they're cast out when they're not. So Twill is brought up very much loved but also realising that girls have to fight for survival um, in, in Victorian London and uh, she grows up to be a really feisty young lady. What I always, because I loved Oliver Twist, I love the story, but I always felt that Oliver was a bit of a wimp and that if he'd only been a girl she'd have been a lot more kick-ass. So Twill is really kind of kick-ass and feisty and adventurous and she longs for adventure um, which she doesn't discover until one day um, she is cast out alone and destitute upon the streets of London and thus her adventure begins when she's about about 12 or 13 years old. Before we get to those adventures I just want to stick with the butterflies for a moment because mm. as an experienced reader you can read all sorts of things into what the expectation is for those beautiful young women but you don't go there you know they are just beautiful ornaments if if you like. They're just beautiful ornaments, yeah. So it's a middle grade novel, but but it does focus on the idea that they, they are cast out when they're no longer beautiful. And so the idea, right from the beginning, I guess we're looking at like what how girls were treated differently and the different expectations of different outcomes for girls in Victorian London. It's interesting you should say that because when I was reading it, I also thought it does have quite a lot of relevance today uh, when yes. so much emphasis is put on the way we present ourselves through social media and what happens if you don't look perfect. 
Yeah, and so hopefully young readers would take that from it as well. And I like the idea of people in class going, oh, no, girls are better than boys. Or, or, or just or girl, whatever girls can do, boys can do better. Or indeed, and indeed actually playing with even those gender definitions, that it doesn't have to be so polarised, that, um, you know, gender is a spectrum. Um, and it was such a, uh, a polarised um, thing within in Victorian times, but actually most of us, you know, are somewhere on that spectrum. So, yeah, that, that I really wanted to, 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 to have, I imagine those heated discussions happening in primary school classrooms when people were reading it. I like that idea. I can tell you, do because you invite them in the way that you write. You pose some very provocative questions. And being a teacher myself, I can just imagine if I was reading that out in the class, I would have a chorus of yes or no, no. depending on what side of the fence that I'm sitting. So I can see that you're kind of playing and inviting your readers to mm. uh, respond in that way. Um, but she is cast out and she meets a familiar character as a result of uh, a scene that echoes in a way Oliver Twist, doesn't it? So she finds herself in London and she tries to foil a thief and gives chase. Uh, but when when the pickpocket, the familiar looking top hatted pickpocket is just about to be caught, he turns around and shoves the stolen goods into Twill's hands and she finds herself suddenly being chased by the law and then suddenly rescued unexpectedly just at the very last minute. And that's when she encounters somebody who will be quite familiar to anyone who's ever read or watched um, Oliver Twist. Absolutely. And is thrust into another band of young women who yeah. in some way act as a counterbalance for that first group that we've met, the butterflies. I think we must say a little bit about this sassy sisterhood. Yeah, so the Sassy Sisterhood of Saffron Hill are an all-girl band of pickpockets who, um, I suppose they're based on Fagin's gang of boys, but these are all girls and what they steal is their own to a certain extent and they are very loyal to each other. They're not answerable to any man in this world, they're a very independent group of young ladies. Let's talk a little bit about your writing and what you took from Dickens and what you made your own in this story, because it is undoubtedly your own but there are some nods to Dickens and I can tell there are some things that you really appreciated in his writing your wordplay and your sense of irony definitely <laughs> tell us a bit about your style in this book so um, as a teacher myself over the years I've, I've, I've had the great privilege of te teaching Dickens to generations of GCSE students um, and, and studied it myself at school um, I, I always say one of my most powerful memories at school is um, the first time I ever saw a teacher cry, Mrs. Barrett. It was in 1990, in a wet November morning in a, in, a, in a horrible classroom, and she was reading an extract from Bleak House where Joe dies, and she burst into tears, and I'd never seen a teacher cry before. It had a really profound effect on me because I realised that a, a writer had reached out over over 150 years to touch the soul of somebody with the death of a fictional character. And so two things happened to me. And I think it really profoundly shaped who I was as a writer because I realized that stories could do that, that they could make a difference. And one of the things I did try and do in this story, I really hope that it's 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 a rip-roaring adventure and it's great fun. But Dickens does also write books that he was trying to expose the plight of the Victorian poor. And I would say in a lot of my other books that I've written, that 
I've set out to make readers ask questions about our society. I've written about refugees and about asylum seekers. And I think that was really shaped by what Dickens does. Dickens was a campaigning novelist. And so even though Another Twist in the Tale is great fun, it was inspired by my experience. I worked with um, street children and in an orphanage in South Africa. Um, and, you know, modern slavery and, and sweatshops and uh, some of the issues that I explore in the book, of course, still exist in our world today. So I want to do that, but I also wanted to, I mean, what I love about Dickens, I love his characters, love his characters. I remember my sister and I calling my brother, Mr. Pumblechuke, when she was studying Great Expectations. I just fell in love with these amazing names. And so I try, and, and the names that are as grotesque and glorious and funny and absurd and moving and brilliant as the characters themselves. So I tried to create my own sort of characters like that. I loved doing that. And also loved the fact that Dickens tells stories he wrote, didn't he, for um, newspapers. So each episode he had to end it on a cliffhanger so that people would buy the next edition. And so I tried to do the same with the story that I tried to have tw every twist in a tale cliffhanger so that you just couldn't stop reading. Because as a teacher, I find that students can sometimes find Dickens initially the language, the long sentences can be a bit daunting. But what grabs them in the end is the characters and the stories. They just want to know more. And so I knew that's what I wanted to do as well. And those were the things that I really tried to emulate in his writing. Of course, Dickens was writing in a pre-televisual photographic world. And so yeah. the things that he had to do for his readers, who might never have visited those places... You don't have to do that in the same way. You can just crack on with the story. Although I did have great fun. I went on an amazing walking tour of London called Twists and Turns, um, following in the footsteps of Oliver Twist so that I could absolutely evoke the right places. So I do think I've got, the, and, and also some of it was set in a bit of London I lived in for a long time that I love very much. Mm. So hopefully I tried to bring alive Dickens London and that if you were, I don't know, if teachers are studying the Victorians, it would also have an insight into Victorian London as well while you're reading it. I did, I was, very very scrupulous with my research I, as a teacher I didn't want any other Dickens readers or scholars to tell me I got anything wrong so I did try very hard to get things right I mean that love of London and the I'm passionate about place names and every place I visit I take photographs of the place names where the oh. school is and London is one of my favorite places for doing that and yeah. you pepper the novel with the most wonderful, you know, like Saffron Hill. And then that's got a story behind it, hasn't it? Why was that called Saffron Hill? That was where the crocuses, the saffron was sold. And it's just threaded through there. So much so that actually your sassy sisters even are named after parts of London. Yes, they're all named after the places. They're all street girls who've had, who've, in fact, names is quite important, isn't it? Most of them have forgotten their names. They've never been named. No one's ever, ever really loved them. So they end up being named after the places that they're found, like Angel, who's found in Islington, and Chelsea, who's found on the King's Road. So they become named. That's all, that's the only names they've ever known. Before we talk a little bit more about Dickens, it would be lovely to get a flavour of the story. And would you read a little bit for us? Yeah, I'd love to. So I'm going to read you one of my favourite bits, which is where one of my creations, Twill Twist, encounters one of Dickens' creations for the first time. As I said, she uh, she's being chased by the law um, and just the very last minute she's rescued by somebody and um, this is what happens. You, declared Twill. The young gentleman before her took a low bow and then looked up with eyes that were full of rather world-weary mischief. 
Jack Dawkins, miss, at your service. Some call me John or Master Dawkins, but generally I'm known as the artful dodger or dodger to me friends, and I do believe we is going to be good friends, my good woman. I am not your good woman, said Twill, hands on hips, eyes ablaze with indignation, and I would never be friends with such as you. You nearly had me arrested. Now give me that purse so I can clear my name. What? This? asked the artful dodger. He was a little bit older than he had been when he first encountered Twill's brother all those years ago. A little wiser too, a lad of 15 or maybe 16, he'd never known his birthday, no more than he had his long gone parents, and taller now with an occasional dip and catch to his voice, but the artful dodger he was in the flesh and he dangled the reticule before Twill who made for a swipe for it and missed. Despite the passing of the years, Dodger was as quick as in the days of Fagin's gang and more wary with it. You're a quicken, I'll grant you, said Mr. Dawkins. There's not many can outpace the artful dodger. Shame you're not so bright in the uh, upstairs department. At this, he tapped his forehead and raised an eyebrow in a way that made Twill's blood boil. Give it here, said Twill, making another swipe for the reticule. I need to return it. And what do you think will happen if you does, said Dodger? You turn up at that grand house, clutching a stolen purse, seeking a reward, will you? The traps will have you clapped in irons and transported to the colonies, and that's if they don't let you swing. Twill paused for a second. Well, I'll tell him it wasn't me. The Dodger just laughed. Oh, you're a green and no mistake. Wouldn't have thought it, though, because you've got a good pair of legs on you, though your knowledge of the area ain't what it needs to be for this line of work. You was lucky I was here to rescue you. Rescue me? Well, of all the nerve, you're the reason I'm in so much trouble. Gammon and spinach, said the Dodger, who was in truth rather enjoying this encounter with the fair-headed maiden. What's the difference between a rescue and a peaching job between friends? And you got her a bit mitt, you'd have been in a fix without me. I've got to admit no such thing, said Twill. And if you don't mind, I'll be leaving now. Got better places to be, have you, said Dodger. Well, I wouldn't go out there just yet. They'll have peelers stationed all around on the lookout for you, my flash companion. No, you'd better stay here till it gets dark. Don't fret your eyelids. Dodger will take care of you. If I didn't know better, I think there was a bit of flirting going on there between. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see, we shall see. Yeah. <laughs> So you mentioned earlier about your own love of Dickens and your eyes being open to the kind of social situations that he was writing about. Yeah. Um, one of the characters that you um, include in your book is Fagin, but Dickens was problematic too, wasn't he? Yeah. And that's a character that is probably one of the most problematic. So how did you feel about approaching that character? It's really problematic, isn't it? because there is more than a degree of anti-Semitism in the way that Dickens portrays Fagin. And I was drawing, so I had a, a beautiful old copy of Oliver Twist, and I tried to draw on, as with Dodger, I tried to draw on the way that Dickens describes him, the language that he uses. Um, I did that for all the characters that were reintroduced, but then you look at the descriptions of, of Fagin and, and he does foreground his Jewishness. So I, in a sense, I tried to step away from it in the, I, I, in the descriptions that I chose to use. 
you can't, you can't make Fagin a goodie, can you? You just can't. And both in this book and in, in the, ne- the sequel, well, not a sequel, the next one that I'm writing is a sequel to Frankenstein called a Monster, The Monster's Child. Um, and in that one, so in, in b- both these books, I've been trying to give voice to, so this book, I suppose, gives voice to women, to the girls who I was with, but I did try to give voice actually to marginalised characters because the classics have been populated by um, faces and voices that are male, pale, straight, and able, and I try to I try to portray characters to explore those, and particularly in the next one to explore presentation of characters who are non-European, who are neurodiverse, to look at presentations of disability. The presentation of disability in Frankenstein is really problematic, so I try to write against the text and question it as much as possible, and to maybe make you think about them, and to, and and to, to shy away from those prejudices, I suppose. But it's really difficult to do it and be and be on it and to be truthful to Dickens' own attempt as well. I, I hope I've done my best. That's all I was, no. Richard, you'll be really conscious of it when you're doing it and not reinforcing the biases that he's putting forward and to question them a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, what your teachers did for you, which was talk about the context in which books yeah. were written, is so yeah. important, isn't it? Yeah. So let's come to your teaching then, because you teach Dickens. You teach Dickens yeah. at GCSE. What is the GCSE text at the moment? Well, we've just changed, but I mean, my, this book is dedicated, in fact, to my, my last year's GCSE students with whom um, we studied hard times. Um, so it's dedicated to them um, because, as I say, they were hard times, but ever the best of times. They didn't have the easiest run of it, those GCSE guys, with um, COVID, etc. Um, and I think they would tell you that they did not always enjoy every moment of hard times it was hard work at first and but it's a great one feels a great triumph as a teacher if you can get them past their sort of fear of the long complex grammar the complex vocabulary and get them into the fact that it's a really brilliant story and the characters they won't forget and so even this year I've had a few of them come up to me going oh miss happy days with hard times we miss those days (laughs) I know hard times really well, and it's not the one that I would necessarily pick for um, nope. readers of that age. So if you've managed to get them going away, saying things like that, you must be creating a little bit of magic in your teaching. Tell oh, I don't, know. I don't know. I think it's the characters and the comedy of it, isn't it? I don't know if you can tell from the way I read it, but I quite like acting it out and getting them acting the characters out as well, because Dickens, of course, always uh, narrated... He, he stood in front of a mirror, didn't he, apparently, pretending to be his characters. And I really love that because I'm a little bit like that myself. I walk around the supermarket muttering in, as one of my characters. So I suppose there's an element of that. It's easy yeah. to pass over that as though that's nothing. But actually, the reading aloud of it, whether you do it as dramatically as you did or not, you know, having that confidence, it must start with the reading aloud. Let's hear it off the page. Yeah, I think so. I think you have to... I think you have to do that, don't you? To hear it as a story and to, to bring it alive in that way, I think is quite important. I mean, I'm a real fan of, I mean, that's where this comes out of. I'm a real fan of them actually trying to, to write themselves in the style of something. So my students to try and get a sense of, of Dickens' prose style and, what, and his techniques, I will quite often get them to try and write and another bit using, we'll, we'll sort of analyse a section. I mean, I'm, I'm talking like 
you know, we, my, my students are brilliantly bright. They're amazing and they can analyze the sections and they can pick out his amazing use of metaphors and similes and anaphora and, and, and asyndentive, et cetera. But what really brings that home to them is then sometimes you'll go, okay, right now I want you to write an episode yourselves and you've got to use all those techniques, which actually massively improves their own creative writing, but also reinforces to them the brilliance of what he's doing and trying to create sentences. And for me, of course, that was glorious. I mean, that's what, um, you know, that, that really helped me with my own writing. And I tried to create, although this is aimed at nine to 12 year olds, I did. I don't want to dumb down, actually. I'd say that my, I tried to replicate some of the, the syntactical, some of the gloriously rich language. Um, my editor did make me take out some ridiculously long words that he just said, come on now, this is too long. I think it's when I had vicissitudes and accretions in the same sentence. He told me to take, take one oh. of them out. It's not vocabulary by and large that is difficult. It's the syntax, isn't it? Yes. You have the main clauses often left to the end of very long sentences. And by the time you get there, you can't really remember the beginning of the sentence. So I think I've got my sentences are definitely a watered down version of Dickens. I've definitely tried to use his prose style, but to make it accessible for young readers. Um, I gave it actually to some of my year sixes to read when it was in draft form, just to see whether it was too difficult. And they and, and that was really helpful to me. But actually interesting. I mean, teaching young kids, you know how amazing they are at coming across. If it's a word they don't know, but it's put into a sentence that they understand, then they do understand yeah. it. So I think actually using complex vocabulary really improves their own. So, yeah, so I think probably um, getting them to do their own writing is actually a really, really great way into a text. And actually getting, the, and, and, and as I said to you earlier, this story came out of my creative writing club at school, where I'd seen Caroline Duffy read The World's Wife, came back and said, hey, let's do a project on, on spin-off stories from history and, and the classics. And they wrote these amazing stories. And I always write when they're writing. And that's quite important, actually, that they see that you write when they write, that you read when they read. And so I had a go. And literally that, literally that was where I started writing Another Twist in the Tale in, in mm. Q15 on Tuesday lunchtimes. So I do believe that actually spin-offs so it's so one of the resources we've made actually on the nosy crow website we've made lots of teaching resources for this but one of them i created was something i've done with students which is getting them to, to write like a like a short piece it talk, walks them through it of a character from a book they love but a minor character who doesn't get a voice who never gets heard um so there's a, a really good resource that I, i've used with loads of students over the years and it literally takes you through line by line so from the beginning write this bit then tell me this bit then try to do that bit and they're not allowed to tell that they shouldn't tell you who the character is and then people have to guess by the end and some of my students have written amazing pieces using that so and it gets them really excited about books and about their own spin-off tales mm, so. that sounds really exciting I'm gonna have a go at that exercise myself and I love what you said you know I, I get a sense of real community in your classroom because you said I read when they read I write when they write and there is nothing more powerful than being a model of language use yourself and not being afraid to share. It doesn't have to be perfect, does it? You know, in fact, sometimes maybe it's better when it's not perfect. I think so. So yeah, in creative writing, when I'll sit down and write, you know, we'll do things in five minutes or in class and read them out and for them to know that you're not frightened to, because it's really nerve wracking reading or writing out. But it's okay to admit that it's not perfect and to listen to each other's ideas. And yeah, that, that, I think that's really important. And that's something that I love, particularly in creative writing club, but also in the classroom as well. Put in the question a slightly different way. Are there things that you would avoid that you think will actually kill a classic writer for young readers? 
that's the that's always the fear that's your fear as a teacher isn't it that you know you've got this great book and you're putting them off and I'm not going to lie the current GCSE which is uh you know really time pressured and not always some of the sort of assessment objectives and the requirements that's um, to get them through to the grades they want uh, sometimes aren't conducive to making them love it. Um, they can feel that you're just pulling it apart in so much detail and you've lost the sense of story. And that's something you really have to be so mm. careful of as a teacher. And, you know, it's, 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 it's the great fear. I, I, I always start my GCSE journey with kids saying, look, there's, I, I talk to them about, you end up telling them what, how to get, what they've got to do to get the grades they want. But then I always say, I would not be standing in front of you if this was the only reason if I was just here to get you a grade is that I genuinely believe that the books we study will enrich your life they will make you understand yourself better they'll make you understand the world better they will open your eyes make you ask questions and if I didn't believe in those things it doesn't matter whether whether you get an A star or a grade nine or whatever it is and I think it's probably as a teacher you've got to keep that in your mind all the time because because we're so there's so much pressure on the kids to get the results and schools to get the results and you have to keep remembering that like why you do it I think that's probably the most important thing so one of the things that you said there was the fear of losing the story by going into the details so much I wonder whether setting up the whole story first is that something that you do sometimes sometimes we do but the book I'm teaching at the moment I'm teaching um, Purple Hibiscus by um, Chimamanda Adichie and Gozi Adichie um, it's amazing and I had a brilliant moment yesterday it's 17 chapters long on chapter 14 I'm not going to tell everyone what happened but my class have been reading I've set them two chapters a week they've been reading and so we'd got to the end of the chapters they'd studied and then something happened and I said well what do you think this could indicate and they went well is it this is it this is it this going to happen and then we read the next bit and they went oh we did not see that coming miss oh my goodness we didn't see it coming and then they said what's going to happen next what's going to happen next and I said well you have to read the new tech new two new chapters this week and I had a huge sense of triumph that they they still 14 chapters in when they might have been getting a bit jaded were going whoa didn't see it coming so that was quite exciting and one kid said miss I have read to the end so I did know and I said thank you so much Jasper for not telling everybody so we had that joy in the classroom of everybody finding it out at the same time and that was a little bit like when I've taught it in primary schools I've loved that moment of reading a class book together and finding it out together and everyone discovering it together is glorious so I'd saved the twist I knew that I didn't want them to read it at home I wanted to find it out in class but it, different books are different I think fabulous now you've alluded to uh, the Frankenstein book that you're working on at the moment yeah so maybe just um tell us what we can expect next it's called the monster's child and it follows the story of very obscurely at the end of frankenstein when frankenstein goes up to the arctic he, he's taken on a ship and the monster and the monster and he meet on the ship and he dies and the captain of the ship i envisage the captain of the ship has a daughter and her father having seen the monster becomes obsessed with finding again and with discovering it and he becomes almost a bit Moby Dick-like obsessed with counting down so she grows up almost orphaned because her father's off in the Arctic trying to discover this monster um, and she steals upon the ship with him on one occasion when he goes up to the Arctic where they have heard rumours that the monster has in fact had a child and they encounter 
yeah, Frankenstein's monster has given birth to this child. And it's a mixture between um, E.T. meets The Greatest Showman, meets Stranger Things, meets <laughs> Frankenstein. And they end up back in New York in a sort of circus, uh, or a sort of, yeah, as I say, kind of a little bit Greatest Showman-esque uh, Barnum's Emporium of Curios. Um, and then on a kind of race across America, escaping from people who would want to exploit the monster's child because he's different um, and it's a story really which explores the way we treat disability and difference and ultimately it's a story in which, and which which actually rescues that term monster that he is not monstrous in many ways actually a little bit like wonder Ardo palazzo mm. um, and in the end, the monster's child is really the hero of the story and he finds love and happiness, but um, but it also explores the prejudices that he encounters along the way. Mental illness is explored in it as well, but it's also like a rip-roaring adventure. And again, I had great fun writing it. And I pepper it as I do this one with references to lots of my favourite books that pop up along the way. Yeah, And it has to be said that although another twist in the tale is clearly related to Oliver Twist, that lots of you... You get lots of your Shakespearean references and all sorts uh, through your books as well. And we can tell uh, that you love reading those so much. Thanks so much for talking to me today, Catherine. Thank you, Nikki. It's been really great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to In the Reading Corner with Just Imagine. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you can find many more on the podcast section of our website, justimagine.co.uk plus via iTunes or SoundCloud or your usual podcast provider. Don't forget to pass the pod and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues.